0: And well, again, uh, last week we began our Advent series as we started to kind of turn our attention towards the birth of Christ uh, as we do at Christmas time. But, but again, this year we're, we're doing so by looking past the birth of Jesus into the Old Testament and, and seeing just a few of the different ways that the birth of Jesus was actually foreshadowed in the Old Testament through prophecy and types and imagery And we said last week that that this is really important for us to do sometimes because uh, it reminds us that this coming of Jesus, this coming of a Redeemer, of a Messiah, uh, wasn't some kind of last-ditch effort by God to provide salvation for mankind. Rather, the coming of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God, for him to take on flesh uh, and offer it as a sacrifice on our behalf was always the plan. And God gives us glimpses of this uh, long before that silent night in Bethlehem. And, and besides that, it's also just a good reminder for us that that the Bible really is one book, right? It tells one story, and it's all about redemption. It's all about Jesus. And, and so last week, if you were here or, or if you watched online, we we looked specifically at Genesis chapter three, when Adam and Eve. Um, uh, sin and judgment comes on Satan and all of creation because what we call the fall of mankind. But in Genesis 3.15, we looked at this this promise that God makes in the midst of all of these curses and what is called the first gospel, in which God makes this promise that he really is going to send a redeemer who's going to crush the head of the serpent. Well, if you remember, part of that promise uh, was that enmity or hostility, was going to be introduced between Satan and Eve, but in between their offspring. But the result of, that, of the fall would actually become even more devastating than that, as terrible as that is. And in fact, enmity would not only become a reality between Satan and Jesus, between Satan and God's people, enmity actually would become the reality between mankind and God. Right, so whereas there was once this fellowship and this relationship in the garden between God and his people, the mere presence of sin in the sight of God demanded justice. And so death is introduced there. It's introduced into the world. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden. They're cast out of the presence of the Lord. And really this story of Adam, this story of Eve, is the story for all humanity that as our representative, Adam's transgression, Adam's sin, caused this separation between us, us who's inherited his sin nature and inherited his sin guilt, the separation between us and the one true holy God. So whereas once there there was this peace between man and God, now there's not. Now there's this enmity and this hostility on the part of man toward God. But now our sin demands God's justice. And so really, this is the great problem of humanity. How can sinful man be reconciled back to God? I mean, how can that enmity be removed? How can that transgression be atoned for and taken care of? Well, we get this incredible picture of the answer in so many places in the Old Testament. But the main picture is found in Exodus chapter 12. So let me invite your attention there to Exodus 12 in your copies of God's word. Before we read the context here, Israel is is again this great nation of people. Now God's blessed uh, Abraham and his lineage; he's fulfilled this promise to give him many, many descendants. They're this great people. However, now they're in bondage. They've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And the book of Exodus tells the story of how God delivers or redeems his people, Israel, out of slavery by way of a prophet in Moses. And you might be familiar with the story, but, but again, Moses is called to confront Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, to tell him to let his people go, to let Israel go. And Pharaoh says, No, he says it many times, I'm not going to do that. His heart is hardened. But each time, God sends a plague on Egypt as judgment. And we remember some of these, right? He turns the Nile's water into blood. He he sends swarms of frogs and gnats and flies. He causes the people of Egypt to develop like these terrible boils on their bodies. He sends a a great hailstorm on them. And there's some other plagues as well. And he does this to show his might and his power and his sovereignty over all, including Egypt. And, And as terrible... As all of those plagues sound, it's the 10th plague that's the most serious. Because if you remember, the plague was that God warns Pharaoh, if you won't let my people go, if you won't let my people have freedom, then I'm going to cause every firstborn in the land of Egypt to die. And and so he comes and he makes this warning. And before he does, he, he tells Moses, to give Israel, my people, some specific instructions on how they can escape the coming judgment. This is Exodus chapter 12. We'll just read a few verses of the passage here, starting in verse three. He says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this morning or of, of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Jumping down to verse 12. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, So again, here's God coming to Moses saying, this is what I'm about to do. Here's the the final plague, but here's the instructions for my people, for Israel. And they're pretty straightforward. Uh, Tell Israel, tell the families of of, of Israel to to take a lamb, make sure it's without blemish. You have a a few days to to check it over, make sure it's without flaws. And then on the same day, on the same evening, everyone in Israel is going to kill their lamb, they're going to cook it, they're going to eat it, and they're actually going to take that blood and put it on the doorpost of your home so that when judgment arrives in Egypt that night, God will pass over your home. The the judgment won't hit your home, but it will pass over. That's why we call it the Passover. And and so you can just imagine for a moment what that evening's like for the people of Israel. Like you, you can imagine how bloody of a night that was. I mean, how many lambs were killed that single night? How much blood was shed and then spread on so many doorposts around Egypt? I mean, if you know the story, it comes to pass. God makes good on his promise. He comes in. He he brings the final plague. There's a lot of death, not just for lambs. But the faithful Israelites, they're spared. God really does pass over their home. And, and of course, uh, Pharaoh sends them out. They're rescued from their slavery. And it's the shed blood of lambs that spare Israel from the coming judgment. Well, as we walk forward in the Old Testament, as the Old Testament unfolds, maybe you're a little bit more familiar with the story, right? That Israel, they're now being led to the promised land. They've escaped slavery. God's redeemed them. And on their way, God gives them instructions to say, okay, you're my people. And this is how you're going to function as a nation. This is how you're going to function under my rule and reign, and a necessary part of managing that relationship was how do we handle sin? Because again, you're still a holy God and we're still a sinful people. And if we're really gonna be a people living under your rule and reign, we still have to figure this this relationship out. How do we handle it? And so this theme of shed blood just continues as God institutes a sacrificial system for the nation. And you can read all about it in the book of Leviticus, which I'm sure is everyone's favorite section of scripture. Um, obviously it's not the favorite or usually the go-to book of, uh, uh, of the Bible for most people, but we should be so thankful it's there, shouldn't we? I mean, it's God's word, of course, so it's, it's precious to us. We believe it's inspired and divine. Uh, but, but it continues to give us this picture of, of how sin has to be dealt with, how it must be atoned for in order for God's people to stand before a holy God. And so in the system, I mean, daily animals were dying in order to be presented as this, these sacrifices before the Lord. I mean, day after day after day after day. I mean, shed blood was flowing in the tabernacle and later in the temple when it's built. So again, like that night of the Passover, I mean, we can just only imagine the mess that the priest had to deal with. We can only imagine the sights that we would see in the tabernacle. The smells, the sounds. I mean, it was a a brutal place. So again, this was happening every day. but, But there's one day in particular that was more important than all of them. It was called the Day of Atonement right? And on this day each year, the high priest of Israel, he he would have special instructions so that the sins of the people of Israel could be atoned for. And he had really specific protocols to follow. He had to bathe himself. He had to put on the right garments. He actually had to offer a sacrifice for himself personally first to make sure that he was cleansed and a worthy mediator between Israel and God. He would then take two goats and And taking a knife would slaughter the one, shedding its blood and presenting that blood before the Lord in the most holy place, that place that they could not go. He would then take that other goat and he'd place his hands on the goat and he would pray and confess the sins of the nation, symbolizing this this transfer of the sins of Israel onto that goat. And then he would send the goat off into the wilderness, again to symbolize those sins have been taken away no longer on the people of Israel. So while sacrifices were made every single day in Israel, that day was especially important. And so as we read through our Bibles and you read through scripture, we should see that the pages of the Old Testament are just filled with the blood of animals presented as sacrifices for the sins of men and women. And the question we need to ask as we read all of those accounts and we, we see all of these um, um, systems put in place by God is to ask, man, how could the blood from animals atone for human sin? Have you ever wondered that? How in the world do, does, does the shed blood of animals atone for the sins of Israel? Well, it can't. I mean, that's the whole point. It's the whole point of the gospel. In fact, later when we walk into the New Testament, we walk into the book of Hebrews. And this is a major theme of the book of Hebrews where the author is saying, listen, this is all of what this was pointing to in Jesus, what he says in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. He says, For since the law was but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. He's saying, I mean, animals can never truly atone for our sins. And yet, blood does need to be spilled. Again, death is the only acceptable judgment of sin. Is what he says in uh, the previous chapter, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So we see this this tension that we have in scripture, that that blood needs to be shed, but the blood of animals is never enough. That we need someone greater. We need something better. We need a, a better sacrificial lamb. One that all of those other sacrifices are meant to point to and we get that sacrificial lamb in Jesus. In fact, Paul refers to Jesus in 1 Corinthians 5-7. He actually calls Jesus our Passover lamb who's been sacrificed. He's the true Passover lamb. All that we read about in the Old Testament points to the one true sacrifice. That the lambs that were killed to atone for God's people were meant to ultimately point to the coming sacrificial lamb who's greater in every way. In fact, the superiority of Jesus' sacrifices over the sacrifices of these uh, uh, other sacrifices in the Old Testament, again, is this major theme in Hebrews. Again, he says in chapter 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Again, the author is saying, man, if the blood of goats can somehow pacify the wrath of God for a short time, how much more will the blood of the true sacrificial sacrificial lamb Atone for our sins. Chapter 10, he says in verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What's he saying there? Seeing that thousands upon thousands of animals were killed, but it was never enough. It was never enough. But, but when Jesus comes and he dies, his single offering makes full atonement for his people. So much so that he sits down at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us. In fact, Paul celebrates this in Colossians 1. There's so many places we could go. But verse 19 in chapter 1, he says, for in him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So again, because of Jesus' death, our sins are atoned for, We've been reconciled back to God and no more sacrifices necessary. I mean, this is the story uh, of the gospel that the Old Testament is pointing to. We have a true Passover lamb and Jesus the ultimate sacrifice. Now, if you've been at church for a while, you know that typically we talk about this kind of truth that Jesus is a sacrificial lamb, not really at Christmas, but usually more like Good Friday, right? Like the Easter season. This doesn't feel like a Christmas thought, right? I mean, Christmas typically invokes some other images than blood, doesn't it? <laughs> that, of, of shed lambs and, and, and bulls on, on the altar. I mean, we think of images more like, you know, Joseph and Mary huddled around the baby Jesus in the manger, or shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. Or wise men following the star to find Jesus. I mean, those are the images we typically think of. Not the bloody mess of sacrificing lambs and bulls. And Jesus is certainly, Jesus' bloody body hanging on the cross. However, I mean, Jesus as our sacrificial lamb has everything to do with Christmas. I mean, think about this. We needed more than animals to die on our behalf. We needed a divine sacrifice. Here's what that means. We needed a God who could bleed. We needed more than just the invisible God, but the invisible made visible with flesh and bone. We needed a a divine lamb that could be bound and beaten and nailed to a cross and die. I mean, we needed a better priest who, who not only would bring a sacrifice to the altar, but would actually crawl onto that altar, offering himself uh, as the sacrifice. And so to do this, what does Jesus do? He's born of a woman, he takes on flesh, and he allows that flesh to be torn for us. And in so doing, by our faith in his finished work, our sins are atoned for and we have peace with God. I mean, Christmas has more to do with blood than we might realize, even though I wouldn't suggest changing our decorations to that or anything but we needed a God who could bleed, and Jesus came. Last week, we, um, uh, I offered just a couple of lessons. I just kind of want to do the same thing this morning. Just a couple of lessons we can glean from the truth that Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. And I think first and foremost, what we're reminded is sin really must be serious. Sin really must be serious. I mean, it's common in our day to diminish the work of Christ on the cross, and we often do so by way of diminishing the seriousness of sin. And this can happen in a number of different ways, many different ways, right? Our culture, of course, uh, scoffs at the idea of calling anything sin. I mean, that's seen as intolerant or bigoted and narrow-minded. And that's true of the culture, and we kind of expect that. But but progressive Christianity or or liberal theology kind of plays along with that. And rather than grieving over sin, rather than repenting over sin, it, it would rather celebrate it. That historically, it kind of downplays the seriousness of sin by teaching that, that Jesus' death on the cross means something else other than the satisfaction of divine judgment. So rather than us needing a substitute to satisfy the demands of the law, we, we actually just needed a good example. And that's what Jesus' death does for us. So, so we can just kind of look to him and be inspired to live a moral life, to follow God with a little bit more zeal and a little bit more commitment. And that's what progressive Christianity or liberal theology teaches. But but even we, I mean, we can be tempted to diminish the beauty and wonder of Jesus' sacrifice by downplaying sin sometimes. And and we can do that sometimes by, by, by just lowering the bar of God's moral law while at the same time just kind of exaggerating our own righteousness so that they somehow meet one another somewhere. That we might even begin to kind of lean on our own good works or our theological and biblical knowledge or, or our church attendance or any other really good thing to and really start to believe that 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 we're accepted based on those kind of things. We might prefer to use words like mistakes or, or struggles, which is fine at times, we can do that, but, but, but we shouldn't avoid using the word sin. I mean, God doesn't, Scripture doesn't. I mean, sin, sin really is serious, and it took a serious solution to forgive. In fact, uh, J.C. Ryle wrote in his great book on holiness called Holiness, this is what he said, terribly black must that guilt be for which nothing but the blood of the Son of God can make satisfaction. Heavy must that weight of human sin be that made Jesus groan and sweat drops of blood in agony at Gethsemane and cry at Golgotha, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, the seriousness of the solution demonstrates the seriousness of the problem. I mean, sin really must be serious. But secondly, because sin really is serious, I mean, we're reminded in this that Christ really must be gracious. He must really be gracious, right? I mean, it's when we sense this massive chasm that exists between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of our hearts, it's only then when we truly see the beauty of the one, of the only one who who can bridge that chasm. I mean, gospel-centered discipleship, Growth in the gospel really is simple. It's really just growing in our understanding of God's holiness, growing in our understanding of our sinfulness. And as we grow in that, our love for the cross grows too. But because that's the only thing that can bridge the two. I mean, it's when you recognize that there's no reason whatsoever that God in his majesty should ever accept you, that you'll rejoice that he has in fact loved you and accepted you and it came at such a great cost as the life of his son. I mean, so, so see the blackness, see the severity of your sin, but don't wallow there. I mean, Christ has paid the penalty. right? He's atoned for it by the shedding of his blood. If you put your faith in Christ, you will, you'll never have to answer for it because Jesus already did. That when your sin abounded, Christ's grace has abounded even more. I mean, there's not a single inch of the altar on which your sin was laid where his blood has not fully covered it. The thing is, like our tendency to diminish the seriousness of sin, I think what happens is we can actually diminish the grace of Christ and the sufficiency of his sacrifice too. So for example, do you at times feel like God can never truly forgive you? That might come from a place of taking sin seriously, But be careful that you don't elevate your sin so much that you actually belittle Christ's blood. Seeing it as insufficient, seeing it as powerless. No, your sin was really paid for. Or or do you still feel like you need to earn God's approval, earn God's acceptance? I mean, you're believing ultimately that you can't atone for your own sin. And what happens is by elevating your own righteousness, you're belittling Christ's sacrifice. Because what you're saying is it was unnecessary or it's merely just kind of an accessory to my own faithfulness. I mean, let's not belittle the shed blood of Jesus and the grace we find in the gospel. We needed it, but we got it in Christ. So again, Christ really must be gracious to offer himself as the only acceptable sacrifice for your sin and mine. See him this morning as the gracious Passover lamb that he is. And if you've never trusted in Christ this morning, we would implore you to do that. In fact, Calvin, John Calvin in his institutes, he talks about this need that, that, that the death of Christ isn't enough, that, that it actually has to be applied to us. you can imagine the Israelites, imagine them uh, killing a lamb, but not putting it on the doorpost. No, we, want, we need Christ's blood applied to us. So we turn to him in faith and repentance. And if you've never done that, we would encourage you to do that. But a great gift to the church to remember this truth really is the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, communion. It's a great gift for us. And if you know what, where this comes from, Jesus, he, before his arrest, before uh, he's arrested and goes to the cross, Jesus is in the upper room. He's with his disciples and he teaches them there. And he teaches us to, to eat the bread, to drink the cup, and to do it as a way of remembering his sacrifice. In fact, Jesus... Institutes this as he and his disciples were eating of all things their Passover meal. In other words, while lambs are being killed in Jerusalem outside their door, the true lamb would soon die outside the city on a cross. And so now the church gathers together and we partake. And as we do that, we're reminded that Jesus took on flesh, that it was torn for us reminded that Jesus allowed his blood to be shed as the perfect sacrificial lamb to atone for our sins. And every time we partake, every time we do this, we're proclaiming the gospel yet one more time to our own hearts and to one another.